Good morning again. It's good to see you all. We will be in Exodus chapter 9 today. We'll begin in verse 13. Uh, If you're using one of the scripture journals, if you've been here week to week since we started this series many months ago, uh, we'll be at the bottom of page 40 today. Uh, If you have a copy of God's Word, Exodus 9, Exodus is the second book in the Bible starting at the very beginning, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, as always, we'll have the uh, verses available for you on the screen. You can follow along with us that way. Uh, It's good to be back here, specifically at this point. It's interesting, we're closing in on one year uh, of meeting here at First Baptist Church. Technically, we're over that line if you consider our 1 p.m. and 5 p.m. services that many of you may remember from last uh, May and June, or May and June of 2020. But we're approaching one year of FBC being willing to let us meet here at 9.15, have a morning service, overlap kids' classes with theirs, begin to find ways to share congregation to congregation. So I just want to remind you of that. I want to always keep that in front of you, that that's a great opportunity today on your way out to say thank you. If you see somebody from First Baptist this morning, just to let them know how much we appreciate the chance to be in this room and the consistency that this building, having our offices here, has brought our church. It's a gift to you and I, whether you know it or not. Um, Today... In the narrative of the book of Exodus, we will arrive at what is the beginning of the end for the Egyptian people and the Pharaoh. The first six plagues come in two sets of three, and then the last four plagues function similarly. So today is plague seven. We've sort of seen, uh, parenthetically, plagues one, two, and three. God sort of fires a warning shot across the bow of the Egyptian ship. Plagues four, five, and six, God becomes a little bit personal with the culmination of the plague of the boils. It's the very first time that God attacks the health of the people, not just their resources, not just their livestock or their land, but he goes after them themselves. He's becoming more and more personal. He is honing in on the life. Uh, One of the words that he'll use today when he addresses Pharaoh is the inner man of Pharaoh is whom he is addressing, whom he is attacking. And so plague seven is the beginning of the last set of three, seven, eight, and nine, and then plague 10 is its own horrific thing that stands alone, and we'll get there and you'll hear why in a few weeks. But when we look to this story, we see that God is going to send a storm upon the people of Egypt. Literally a storm, not just, uh, I don't just mean that colloquially, that things are going to get bad. Literally, God will open the heavens and send weather down upon the nation of Egypt, unlike anything that they've ever seen. And in in what is probably a likely a familiar pattern for you by now, we will find a modern idol, an idol of our culture, among the wreckage of the damage that God does to the Egyptian gods in his, the midst of his curse. So let's begin reading. Uh, we'll start in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 21, take a break and talk about it just a little bit. Exodus nine thirteen. Then the Lord, and you know that where the Bible says the Lord in that setting, it's using God's name, so we can say Yahweh, the name that he introduced himself by when he met uh, Moses on Mount Sinai in the burning bush. Then Yahweh said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh, who is the God of the Hebrews. Yahweh has to clarify who he is because he's one of hundreds of gods in the eyes of the Pharaoh. This vast pantheon, the God of Israel seems small and insignificant, so he constantly is putting his name tag back on in Pharaoh's presence so that Pharaoh understands who he's dealing with. This is his command. He says to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me. For this time, and this is where things get very personal, I will send all of my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Just a quick note to you, where the ESV translates the Hebrew to say on you yourself, in Hebrew the word is it's on your heart, it's on your inner man. So in the same language that the Bible has used six plagues in a row, 
to clarify that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. That word heart is the same word that God is using here. He's saying, my plagues are signs, they're messages. I'm not just trying to destroy your economy. I'm not just trying to take away your health. I'm trying to communicate to your hard heart, Pharaoh. That's my intent, that's my purpose. Not a surprise to those of us who've been following along. God has claimed that from the beginning. Verse 15, God says, by now I could have put my hand out and I could have struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth or annihilated or erased. Not only gone now, but your legacy would disappear as well. People would never even know you were here if it was what I wanted. I'm not struggling with you, Pharaoh. I'm doing this on my terms and my timing. But, verse 16, for this purpose I have raised you up or I have propped you up is maybe a better, more literal interpretation in order to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And yet you are still exalting yourself against my people and you will not let them go. So behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. Now therefore send, in other words, send messengers and get your livestock, get all that you have in the field into safe shelter. Why? Because every man and every beast that is in the field about this time tomorrow and is not brought home, they will die when the hail falls on them. They will be crushed to death. Now we step out of God's commands to Pharaoh and we get Moses' narrative insight here in verses 20 and 21. Moses says, then whoever feared the word of Yahweh among the servants of Pharaoh, they took his advice. They hurried their slaves, they hurried their beasts inside, into the houses, into the barns, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left their slaves and their livestock in the field. The narrative story of the seventh plague is a story told in three acts. It's a lot of verses to cover this morning, and so in order for us to orient ourselves well, for you to be able to kind of follow along and keep up today, I'm going to break this into three big chunks for us to look at. And the first act is what I'm going to call the terms of war. This is God's preamble. This is him reminding Pharaoh of where they've been. Now, why would he have to do that? Because chronologically, in the story of the book of Exodus, the plague of boils probably took the longest of any of the ten. Uh, we know about how long there is between the seventh plague and the eighth plague, between the hail and the locust, but I'm not going to steal my own thunder for next week. We'll get there and talk about how we know that later. But we understand the boils to have been maybe two or three months of just a constant assault. You and I have recently lived through a pandemic. We understand what it's like for our entire nation to be under attack from a disease. Imagine if that disease manifested itself with open wounds so badly that even the healthcare workers in our community were unable to care for each of us. I mean, these people are scarred, they are scabbed, and it is into this very early, very immature period of recovery that God sends his prophet Moses to lay the gauntlet down again. And I think this is why God has to clarify. I think it's important to him to tell Moses a couple of things, to give him some insight. First, I think he's trying to communicate, this is from verse 14, that when he sends all his plagues onto Pharaoh's inner self, onto his heart, onto his mind, He's saying, I'm coming for you. This is God's commentary on his own actions. Oftentimes in the Bible, if you're a Bible person, if you go to a church, if you are part of a church somewhere, you navigate the Bible and you find these really challenging places where you just have to sort of figure it out. You look to history or you try to read commentators or you find your favorite YouTube preacher and you just see what they say and then you kind of go along with them because they have a degree and a big following so they must know. But God is helping us. He's allowing us to interpret correctly his actions here. And so the first of his kind of interpretive commentary points in this first act is to tell the Pharaoh, this is between you and me. 
This is much more a duel. That's why I've used the word picture of a boxing match through these plagues. It's because God isn't really attacking the entire people of Egypt. He understands that their whole religious, economic, social infrastructure all hinges on one man. And if he can get to the heart of that one man, the people will follow. So God says, I'm coming for you, Pharaoh. That's the first sort of commentary insight that he gives us. The second is in verse 15. In short, God is saying, if I wanted you dead, Pharaoh, you would be already. I'm not having a hard time here. God goes so far as to take responsibility, personal responsibility, for sustaining Pharaoh, for sustaining Egypt through the previous six plagues. He says to Pharaoh, this is the whole reason that I'm holding you up that I'm supporting you as I continue to pummel you is because you are the strongest of all of the people. And it's been a very long time since the Tower of Babel, the last time people elevated themselves historically to a point where they thought they could contend with me, and now it's your turn. And so I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna raise you up to the highest possible position that a human being can go so that when I conquer you, no one on the face of the planet will have any question about who's really in charge. I don't want you to be able to fool yourself anymore. Now, to you and I, in a modern context, people who typically self-realize and really emphasize our own value and our own rights, that feels offensive. It doesn't feel very good for God to claim that it's his role to hold somebody up so that he can knock them down. But in the grand scheme of things, what God is communicating is that his heart is for all people everywhere. His intention is to take down the person in whom we might be tempted to place our own identity so that we are open to him. God understands that our idols are not just dangerous because they lead us to destruction, they're dangerous because they tempt us to think that we are inoculated against him, that we don't actually need him. That a God or the idea of a God or the idea of a spiritual or universal or cosmological force is a man-made idea built to answer questions that don't have answers in science. That's not the case. God is very personal. He wants to be known, he's willing to make himself known. And then his third commentary comment in verse 18, It's a really fun phrase that God uses. He says, quote, such as had never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, you and I are not ancient Egyptians, so you read that and you go, okay, God is maybe boasting, it's a a warning, right? He's saying, it's never been this bad, listen to me. But that specific language is important. Written inside the tomb of a pharaoh named Thutmose II is the phrase that he had done more than all the things that were in the country since it was founded. This was common language, pharaoh to pharaoh. This was the way that a new pharaoh would be coronated. He would be brought in despite his age, and he would say over all the people, there will be days ahead of us, days that are so good, there will be blessings under my rule because of my ability, unlike anything you have ever seen in this nation until today. It's the exact language that God sends Moses to speak to the pharaoh. In the same way that Moses, excuse me, that Pharaoh's magicians thought that they saw the little finger of God in the third plague, and then God told Pharaoh he would send his whole hand. In the same way that when we looked at the idol of health, God sent Moses to throw ashes into the air to speak a religious language that the Pharaoh and his priests would speak, and not only that, but to use ashes from a brick-making kiln to communicate that God saw the grief and the struggle of his people slaving in those very kilns. God is doing something subtle here as well. He is calling out the Pharaoh using his own language. This would be, if God were to do this, as if God were to send a prophet to our White House and instruct that prophet to use language verbatim from the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence to attack or disqualify our national leaders. 
God is using the language of Pharaoh so that Pharaoh, excuse me, let's say that again. God is using the language of Pharaoh so that Pharaoh has to take him seriously. If Pharaoh disqualifies the way that Yahweh speaks to him, then Pharaoh is disqualifying his own voice. God knows this, and this is exactly why God speaks to to Pharaoh the way that he does. So in Act 1, Yahweh lays out the rules again. He sort of resets the battlefield. The fighters have gone back to their corners. It's round 7. And Yahweh wants to make sure everybody understands the terms and conditions of how bad this is going to get if Pharaoh refuses to do the very simple thing that God has asked him to do again and again. Yahweh shares with us that this plague and everyone after it is targeted at Pharaoh, that Pharaoh is still around because that's what Yahweh wants, and that the way Yahweh will make his vendetta against Pharaoh known will be legendary. It will be talked about for a very long time. So in response, we see that the people who took Yahweh's threat seriously also took his advice. Moses finds it interesting that even though some of the servants in Pharaoh's presence are quiet, maybe they're just standing there with their hands behind their back while Pharaoh vehemently stomps around his palace throne room and rails his fist against God in the air, as soon as they clock out of their palace duty for the day, they go home and all their people come inside. So they're listening. They're believing. This is sort of an allusion to what will happen when the Passover finally arrives at the end of Exodus 12 and some of the Egyptian people leave Egypt with the Israelites. The slave masters go with the slaves because of the power and the might they have seen in God's person. They would rather follow him than this narcissistic sociopath that they call the Pharaoh. So as we arrive at Act 2, here's my request for you. We're going to actually see the plague unfold. And what I want you to do is I want you to try to sense this, to try to experience it as much as you can. I don't think the Bible is trying to be a science textbook. I think it's trying to convey the drama of a clash of power against power at a universal scale. And so if you need to close your eyes, you can do that. Some of you already are because you're asleep, so just leave the people around you alone. That's okay. If you want to sketch some of this, I know some of you guys have been drawing as we go in your scripture journals. That's great too, but I want you to just try to really picture this. I'm going to read it slowly to you. This is God flexing just a little bit against a Pharaoh he could have destroyed a long time ago because God wants to make himself known. This is act two, what I'm calling death from above. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven. Picture this, this man is somewhere between 80 and 100 years old. Lift your hands to the sky, God says, so that there may be hail in all of the land of Egypt that it may fall on men, that it may fall on animals, that it may crush every plant of the field in the whole of the land. And then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and Yahweh sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And Yahweh rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field, in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And listen to this. The hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. The strength of this maelstrom was snapping mature trees off from the ground. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. God makes a distinction again. Now, I don't know if you know much about thunderstorms. Many of you are native Alaskans. You're local to here. You have grew up here. You've lived here. Maybe you went away for college and came back because the people in the lower 48 are too progressive or they don't, whatever it is about you. There are too many people down there. You've got to get back and get to where you can breathe again. I understand that. 
But where I grew up in northeast Texas, we have a weather phenomenon that doesn't really happen very much in Alaska. We have thunderstorms. You've probably seen these in movies. You guys heard about this before? Yeah? I miss this. When my wife and I moved here, even when we lived in Kentucky, which is sort of our stopover between Texas and here, we had thunderstorms, especially at nighttime. Big peals of lightning and thunder in the sky, heavy rain that you can actually hear on your windows. And it was awesome at nighttime. There's no better way to fall asleep at all. Now, once in a while, in the middle of the summer in East Texas where I grew up, a thunderstorm would bring hail along with it. And at the very worst, typically the hail would maybe for a few minutes get up to golf ball size, but was typically more like a pebble. Just little tiny, not much to it, almost like marbles falling. And they still hurt, okay? God, I'm not challenging you. I know you're listening today. I'm not saying that's not good enough. But what the Bible is describing is different from that. The Bible is talking about pieces of ice like you and I would see floating in the Cook Inlet. Somewhere between a brick and a Thanksgiving turkey is what we're dealing with here. Falling onto people, falling onto buildings, crushing the ground. And that's just one-third of what God sent in this disaster. The hail that God is describing, that the Bible tells us about, was massive. This was a loud storm. It was the Hebrew word for thunder, what we read in these verses previously, it comes from the Hebrew word for voice. Because the Hebrew people sensed within the thunder somewhat of the voice of God. For those who were in the land of Goshen, this sort of unappealing, not sought after piece of the nation of Egypt where all the slaves lived, they could see the storm clouds all around the edges of their land. They could probably hear the screams of people within a couple miles of them. There's no radio to turn on. There's no white noise. They can't pop their earpods in. Excuse me. They have to deal with the suffering of the people of Egypt refusing to listen to Yahweh and obey his commands. As the thunder peals across the sky, I believe that the Hebrew perspective of that is similar to God screaming his war cry as he goes to war with Israel's enemies, as he does the necessary violent work to set them free from these people who have oppressed and abused them for hundreds of years, totally dehumanizing them. This is what has stirred God up in anger. He's not petty. It's not a small thing. It's the misuse, it's the dehumanization of his children that has driven him to this point. And then in what is maybe the most interesting phrase in Exodus 9, if you're using the English Standard Version like I do, in verse 24 you see that the Bible says that there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail. The words fire flashing continually are very hard to translate from Hebrew. They're sort of an anomaly. Literally in Hebrew it just means that there was fire taking the hail, holding the hail, gripping the hail. Um, That phrase coupled with the words fire ran down to the earth in verse 23, I believe are the ancient Hebrews' best attempt at describing lightning, ball lightning. I mean, I don't know if you know this, in Cairo, in Egypt, there's less than one inch of rain a year, a year. So hail doesn't happen, thunderstorms don't happen, rainstorms don't happen, lightning doesn't really happen. This kind of lightning that's rolling around in the midst of this hail is, from what I understand, similar to what's known as ball lightning. Lightning that actually travels perpendicular to the surface of the earth because the atmosphere is so charged by some kind of natural disaster, an earthquake, a tsunami, something like that, a tornado, where the polarity of the sky and the ground almost becomes perpendicular to the earth because of the amount of static that is happening in the air around them. For a group of people who have never seen a rainstorm, This is beyond anything they could have imagined. 
This is interpretively for them the closest thing they're going to get to magic in their lives. I mean, this has no explanation. There is no science. There is no meteorologist who comes on the news three hours before the storm and tells everybody how to survive it and then comes back on three hours after the storm and gives a report on the casualties. This is individual people in their homes at a total loss for how to respond and react to this. And it is devastating. Fire and ice and lightning fell from heaven and the land was ruined. Egypt was a nation economically dependent on its ability to harvest three crops, barley, flax, and wheat, and they come in that order, and they each are harvested about one month apart from each other. Those first two crops function as the savings account of the nation. This is the national treasury. If they can dry these crops and put away enough of them, then they can enjoy the wheat knowing that they have more money put back with which they can survive the droughts of winter. What God does in this story is destroy 66% of their annual crop. He takes it all the way out. There's nothing left to them of the first two crops. They are erased. And within the calendar year of the people of Egypt, January would have been about when you would have harvested um, flax and barley with the wheat harvest coming in late March. Ironically, January is also when you would have taken all the animals you kept in the barns, probably the, the, the young animals that have just been born the previous spring and summer, and you would have put them out to pasture for the first time. And that's when this hailstorm arrives. We know that because of when the crops are able to be harvested. And so all of the animals that are left from plague five, the plague against livestock, all the young animals who were kept inside and maybe didn't catch this communicable disease that wiped out all of the other herd animals, they're just now put out to pasture and crushed by ice from the sky, demolished by lightning, fire rolling across the ground. They can't survive it. It was, according to verse 24, exactly what God said it would be. It was such as had never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Yahweh kept his promise right on time. But why? Why? This is the question we've asked every week. Is God, like, gluten-free? Does he have a thing against grain? What's going on here? Why would he take the crops out? Why does this matter to him? He seems to have a vendetta with one man. He said as much, right? These plagues are going after your heart, Pharaoh. So why? Why make war on the earth? on the ground, on the natural systems that he himself takes credit for having set up in the first place. Well, I asked myself a couple questions this week trying to get to the bottom of this. This may be where your mind is as well. Was God trying to create an infrastructure problem for Egypt? If his goal is to have about one and a half million people set free, well, maybe getting rid of 66% of the food supply is a great way to exert the necessary pressure on the Egyptians to let them let the slaves go. They don't have enough food to feed them. It's not a good idea to keep them any longer. But I don't think so. I think that's probably oversimplifying. Was God maybe just showing his dominance over the sky? This is what some of the commentators said in what I read as I researched this week, that God's already used the water of the Nile for a plague. He's already used the dust of the earth for a plague. And now he's showing dominance over the sky. But again, I don't think so. I think, as Moses tells us in the book of Numbers, God is waging war on the gods of Egypt, the pantheon, the mysticism of the Egyptian people, and specifically their idols, The idol that God is attacking when he destroys the crops with hail and lightning is embodied by an Egyptian goddess named Renenutet. I had to work on that pronunciation. Renenutet. Renenutet, mythologically, is the wife of Geb. Geb is the god that was in the crosshairs of Yahweh during the third plague when he turned the dust of the earth into gnats. So he's really taking down the whole household at this point. Within the culture of Egypt, Renutet was believed to be the goddess of the harvest, So that makes sense. 
She's also the goddess who oversaw fortune and luck in the lives of the Egyptian people. And so in modern terms, the domain of Renutet included the bank accounts of Egypt, the investment portfolios of Egypt, and the casinos of Egypt. She was the goddess of the wealth you already had, the wealth that you could make with hard work, and the wealth that you might win by playing the odds. She was devastated as Yahweh destroyed the early season crops of Egypt, and he did that to communicate his control over the wealth of the Egyptians. That's the idol in play today. That is the thing that you, alive today in 2021 in the United States of America, are tempted to believe will give you all that you need. That if you had enough money, you could insulate yourself from every kind of problem on the face of the planet. That's the temptation that you have. It's been the temptation of anybody with any kind of power for all of human history. If I can just amass enough stuff, then that stuff will stand in the gap between me and my problems. You struggle to communicate with your family? Well, if I have enough money, I'll just fill all my free time with stuff that I like and forget them. They can be mad at me. Who cares? I'm living my dream. Struggling at work to connect with other people, I'll just double down on my efficiency and I'll take home a higher paycheck. And yeah, maybe it means I sit lonely in my dark apartment and drink five hours a day until I go to sleep, but I earned it. I fought hard for it. And even if nobody else thinks I'm worth anything, I don't care. It's this over-individualization that roots its identity in finances. We fear for our children if we don't have enough money to leave them when we die. We fear that they won't have all the opportunities that they need if we don't work enough jobs and have enough money. We fear for our own mental health if we can't get on that Hawaiian vacation this year like we always do. We build systems in our lives that rely on our ability to spend so that we can get what we think we need from outside of ourselves. Now, a little bit of that is true. You do have a need that is derived from you not being enough for you. You have that need. You are not enough for you. You cannot meet your own needs. But unfortunately, the lie that you've believed past that point is that somebody else can and that they've got it and that it's wrapped in cellophane and all you have to do is hand them enough dollars and they'll hand it to you and then you'll finally be happy. I'll say it to you this way. There is a reason why disproportionately wealthy, later-in-life celebrities take their own lives because they get all the way up there and there's nothing there. They ride the elevator all the way to the top floor of life and the doors open and they're expecting this amazing, exclusive, non-stop, 24-7, 365 party and they step out of the doors and it's a big empty room. And the people up there are shriveled versions of themselves that have spent all of their time trying to find who they are somewhere else that they have nothing left to give. Now, I'm not here to attack you. If you are on that trajectory, the design of my message to you is that you still have time to change that trajectory. You have an opportunity. Pharaoh has an opportunity. The reason that God continues to, quote, prop him up is to give him chances to say, you were right, God, I was wrong. I spent all these 50 or 60 years of my life convincing myself that your faith and your religious system was empty, it was archaic, it was over-anglicized, whatever your beef is with Christianity, Pharaoh would agree with you. But God doesn't stop. God keeps putting people in the path of this man who speak about this Yahweh and who have a very simple request. Give to God what is his. Just give it to him. He's not going to take absolutely everything from you. He's not here to devastate you. His rules are not designed to be withholding or preventative. He wants to give you life. But you've got something you're holding on to so tightly that you can't even open your hands enough to receive something from him. So let go. In this story, it's God's people. In our modern culture, for many of us, it is wealth. And wealth is tricky to talk about because there's categories of wealth. Wealth can be financial. 
Financial wealth is money or valuable things. It's not just being able to spend money. Some of us have credit cards with very high APRs that we should probably shred today, but we use them to spend money to look like we have wealth. But I'm talking about true value. There are people in the world who have enough money that they can invest it in valuable things, and those things give them a return on that investment. I'm not saying that that's bad, but things like land or businesses or even really good new ideas, these tend to be the sources of financial wealth in our society. You can also have social wealth. Your social standing is itself a kind of wealth among the people around you to the point that you can actually become a brand. Thank you, social media, for giving us this gift in our society. This means, and you've probably seen this happen, your name, if you are famous enough, can be attached to a really bad product and still sell that bad product like crazy. Burger King tried to do this a lot of different times, okay? I don't want to eat at Burger King. If you're going to invite me to Burger King, I'll just bring my own lunch. I'll eat there with you. I'm not that extreme, but I I want nothing to do with their Whopper, okay? In the last 10 years, here are some of the celebrities that Burger King has paid millions of dollars to try to convince me to buy some kind of nasty salad that they have, okay? Conor McGregor, David Beckham, Chris Webber. So those are all three athletes. You might not know who they are. You've probably heard of Jay Leno, Salma Hayek, even Steven Tyler, one of the finest musicians on the face of the planet, okay? Pre-drugs, I'm talking pre-drugs Steven Tyler, when Aerosmith was good, okay? When there was still a Steven Tyler in here. He was trying to sell me Whoppers for Burger King, and I'm not going to do it. Big name, bad product. This is social wealth. Some of us, whether we know it or not, are raising children who have come to believe that this is their only hope. This is the new American dream, is that they might build a digital platform where they can become a brand and attach that brand to products that they would never use and sell those products to people like you and I who are trying to find our identity in anything and make a million dollars and be happy. It doesn't work that way, but you should be aware of that. That's social wealth. Freedom is a kind of wealth. It's wealth of time to be able to do what you want to do instead of being able to, or only being able to do what you have to do to survive. So this is the great dream of any first-generation American immigrant people who move to this country, who leave their birth country, and who typically work multiple jobs so that they can pass along the wealth of time to their kids, to give their children the chance to go to college, a chance they never had, to live off the income of only one job as a household, is a novelty for many people, to hone skills, to enjoy hobbies, this is time wealth. And then finally, and we've already talked about this idol, so I won't say much about it, but two weeks ago we discussed physiological wealth, to be healthy, to feel well, to not have to worry about your body getting in the way of your dreams. Now, you may be asking yourself, am I or is God saying that to have more than you need or to have a good reputation, to be free, to exercise agency in your own life, or to be physically healthy are bad things? No. No, that's not what Yahweh is attacking when he goes after the crops of Egypt. What he is attacking is the worship of those things. That is idolatry. Idolatry is to take something good and to elevate it to the point of supremacy in your life, and then to begin to bow down to it. Now, you may go, I don't bow down to anything. I'm an American. I'm proud. I work hard, okay? Here's what that feels like, though. It feels like this sense of nervousness, this sense of uneasiness, of needing to move your weight kind of from foot to foot and fidget and, and, and get out of there as soon as possible when this happens. When your therapist or your favorite podcaster or your preacher, maybe, begins to hone in on something that you care a lot about. And instead of accepting and listening to the idea that maybe you do have a disproportionate relationship with this thing, maybe it is an idol, maybe you've become codependent on something, you begin to justify and backpedal and make excuses and blame it on your parents or blame it on your grandparents or say it's only for a season, it's only for a little while, we won't always live like this, I know it's not good but eventually it'll be behind me. That's what it feels like to bow down. 
It's to have a thing in your life that's too important to let go of because, frankly, it's you. The presence of that thing in your life is your identity, and if you were to lose it, you cannot imagine continuing to exist. This is what we have meant every week when we have attacked these idols with God. When the source of your identity is how much you have or how much you could make, then you have built your life on sand. And that is the message of the hailstorm. That's what God is speaking through this maelstrom in Exodus 9. Yahweh is saying to Pharaoh and to his people, you do not know how to exist outside of your wealth. And so I am going to take your wealth away from you so that we can have an honest conversation heart to heart. Unfortunately for his enemies, Yahweh is devastatingly effective. His storm is simultaneously a run on the banks, a stock market crash, a heist of the national treasury, the total collapse of the national economy, and the extinction of the blue-collar workforce that those things rely on. If I haven't been clear yet, this is the big short meets the Great Depression meets Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It is destruction on every level. And this is why the Bible says that never before in the history of the nation has anything come close to this. So the question hanging in the air between you and I is what will Pharaoh do? If Yahweh has laid down the terms of war, Pharaoh has refused to relent. Yet again, he will not wave the flag of peace. He will not surrender. So God has unleashed his war machine upon Pharaoh. How will Pharaoh respond? He's basically alone at this point. One plague ago, as the boils arrive, Pharaoh loses access to all of his sorcerers and magicians. These have been his ministers. These have been his advisors. They're gone. They're never mentioned again in this story. He is alone. Can he by himself, believing he is a deity in his heart, can he find a way to fix the economy? Can the nation of Egypt recover from the devastation of war with the divine? We will find out in Act 3, which I am calling, Sorry, Not Sorry. We'll begin in verse 27. Then, it's a big then, (laughs) this did happen. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron, and he said to them, this is remarkable, this has not happened in the previous six plagues. He said, this time, I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Now, if you spend any time at all around narcissists, this is a textbook non-apology, okay? This is, yeah, I was wrong this time, you caught me. Okay, there's no real culpability for his past, for his history, for his life. All this enslavement, all this brutal infanticide against these people. And he has to share the blame. We were all wrong together. And how benevolent am I to be the first one to say I'm sorry? You're welcome, Moses and Aaron. Let's keep reading. He says in verse 28, plead with Yahweh. For there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. You think? You think there's been enough? Has he reached his breaking point? I will let you go, and you shall stay here no longer. Now Moses sees right through him. You don't get to be almost 100 years old without figuring out people. He says, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will. I'll stretch out my hands to Yahweh, and the thunder will stop. There will be no more hail, so that you will know that this planet, this earth, your world is the Lord's. But for you and your servants, and here's the insight of God's prophet, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. This is fake. We'll do it anyway, okay? It's okay. I'll ask God to relent. I'm not really into God destroying everything that lives anyway. He's shown his strength to you. He's made his point clear. He will relent. But Pharaoh, I'm on to you. We've done this six other times, and I just don't think it's going to get through to your heart. Now, here's a little bit of kind of an aside, and this is where I have the ability to 
tell you what's going on with the crops and the seasons. Verse 31, the flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. So the barley was almost ready for harvest, the flax was on its way. But the wheat and the amer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. The wheat had not broken through the soil yet. So this is kind of in line with what I was telling you early about the seasons. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh. He stretched out his hands to Yahweh, and the thunder and the hail ceased. Pretty bold of Moses to just take a walk in the midst of the storm. The storm's not over at this point, okay? Still happening. He walks out in the middle of it, probably really dramatic to watch. And the rain no longer poured upon the earth. Moses was right. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. And so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. He proves God right again. God knows this guy. It's very personal for God. God did not meet Pharaoh right before plague one. He has been involved in this man's life from the beginning. He has seen the abuse and oppression that this guy grew up underneath. His dad was the king of narcissists, willing to enslave a group of people and kill all their babies by drowning them alive in the water that ran down through, basically in the street of this nation. What a life, what a great pressure to live underneath, to be a part of generations of the dehumanization of others. God knows this man. He understands that it's going to take something totally extreme to put him in a position of humility where he might finally give to God what is his own. So when we read this, we ask ourselves, did Pharaoh repent or did he not? He said the right words, but his heart didn't change. So how does this work? Does it count? Does it not count? He admits he's wrong. He admits Yahweh is right. He even asked for Moses to pray that he be saved from Yahweh's anger against his rebellion. But no, Pharaoh was not really sorry. Here's what Pharaoh did. He did what we do. And when I say we, I'm talking about those of us who grew up in church. He says all the right things at the right time. He bows and scrapes. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. I know you caught me. I'm so sorry. I'm, it's an addiction. I can't help it. It's just never going to go away. I don't know what to do. But there's no intention to change. There's only a desire to get out from underneath the pain of the consequences and get right back to the thing that you've been giving yourself to. Something bad happens. Pharaoh's on his knees. He's able to explain what he did, even why it was wrong. That speaks to the parenting that he grew up with, right? He was able to take responsibility. But the actionable part of repentance never appears in his life. He gets as close to repentance as a person can without actually making contact with God. This was one of the great problems the Reformers had with the Roman Catholic Church in 1517, that the system of confession where there was a priest standing between God and people was insufficient for people to know God. People could attend a church gathering. They could participate in a liturgy. They could call and response in Latin, say the Hail Mary, the Our Father, all of those things, and nothing got in here. I am not anti-Catholic, but I am aware of how religiosity can feel like a good substitute for relationship, but it isn't. It is insufficient, and Pharaoh is evidence of that. Pharaoh's willing to beg the man of God to pray for him, that he might appease God all along the way, the posturing, the bowing, the scraping. He never connects his soul with Yahweh. The best proof I can offer you that Pharaoh's repentance was fake, that it was just religious theatrics, is the outcome of God's mercy in his life. When Yahweh relented and ended the maelstrom, Pharaoh was unchanged. 
Here he is an eyewitness to the mercy of God, God's ability to turn the thing back off again, to dial the wrath back down to zero and give Pharaoh another opportunity to repent. And he walks away the same proud man. Now I want to be clear to you. I am not saying that Pharaoh failed because he wasn't humble enough to prove to God that he was worth saving. I'm saying that the outcome of his supposed repentance was self-love. It was even more exaltation of himself. And when a person meets Jesus, when they are reached by God, they do not go home more concerned about themselves than ever. The posture and position of their heart is changed such that they see other people. Maybe for the first time in their life, they truly see the people around them. Encountering God's love is the only solution to our idolatry. Exercising religious habits of false repentance, like some kind of weird spiritual mating dance, Right, where if I just do these things in the right order, the Holy Spirit will show up and slap me on the back and say, you did it, everything's gonna be fine. That is not a solution to idolatry. A fresh coat of paint on the same old wickedness is not a solution to our idolatry. When we learn to demonstrate remorse with our body language, when we memorize the words and recite them to our spouse or our life group because we messed up again and it'll be better tomorrow, we promise, or even, God forbid, we speak to God that way, We self-condemn. That is the threat of idolatry. And this is the story of every serial adulterer, every man who swears he's really done looking at porn this time but has no plan to change anything about his access or habits. Every woman wishing that this would be the last time that she would beat herself up, maybe to the point of self-inducing vomiting so that her genes will still fit. It's these habits that we hate that own us. The things that we give ourselves to, believing that the 9,000 times we did them before, no, they didn't do us any good, but this time it'll work. This time it'll be different. This time I'll get what I'm looking for. Or we become so stuck in these cycles of habitual addiction that we have to do this awful stuff to ourselves and each other just to get back to normal. It's the biology of every addiction. The high is non-existent. The new high becomes the old normal, and we're stuck And the fear of what the people around us would think and say if we would repent is so much that we keep our necks stiff and we bow up and we be a good, strong Westerner and we fight even harder to defend ourselves against people who probably want what's best for us by inviting us to repent and change and be different and be changed, be healed by God. Good intentions in the face of the pain of selfishness don't get us very far, certainly not far enough. They push us deeper into our idols instead of setting us free from them. Unhealed, scarred at best, We double down our efforts to build a life on the false gods that our culture exalts. And if we give our lives over to building our own wealth, then we may eventually realize, after decades of that, that we don't actually know our spouse. This is the birthplace of every divorce once the kids grow up and leave the house and all the distraction and white noise goes away and you look across the breakfast table at somebody you haven't really talked to in 25 years. Or we find out that our kids really preferred when we traveled for business to when we were home. That was easier and better for the family dynamic. And so faced with a decision point where we could come down off that ladder we've been fighting so hard to climb to prove ourselves, instead we climb another rung higher. We pour ourselves into our careers, our work, our wealth, hoping to somehow redeem decades of neglecting the most important things in our lives by earning more wealth than ever. In other words, doing the same thing and genuinely expecting a different result, which is, by definition, insanity. That's Pharaoh. Pharaoh who appears to repent, to turn over a new leaf, to have finally found himself in the chaos of his own self-destructive tendencies. It's all his family or his followers could have hoped for him. 
And as soon as the hail stops, he turns around and he walks back to his palace, picking his way through the broken bodies of his servants and the chunks of ice that killed them, spiritually oblivious to everything but himself. So if a once-in-a-millennium hailstorm is not strong enough to repair a human heart, what hope do we have? How does this get better? Who can we turn to if we can't trust ourselves to solve our own problems? Well, at True North, the answer to that question is written on a banner behind me. We believe that it's all about Jesus. We truly mean that it is all about Jesus. Not some, not part, not a little bit, not most. 100% about him. Jesus can set us free from this existence this self-terminating, self-destructive thing that we kind of call life. He alone can break the chain of wealth. And especially here, especially in the West, among the great legacy and pressure of the American dream, whatever that even means anymore. As an example to you, and this is where we'll land the plane, Jesus spoke to a man once who loved his own wealth. You may know this story, Matthew chapter 19. That man asked Jesus a question that I've asked Jesus a thousand times. He came to Jesus and said, what else do I have to do? What do you want from me? He wanted a transaction. He didn't want a relationship. And Jesus' answer floored him. I mean, it hurt his feelings. The Bible said he walked away sad. Jesus said, I want everything from you. If you want to start living out of an overflow of life, an abundance of life, then you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then you will be ready to follow me. And the man walked away, heartbroken at the idea of what it would feel like to have to let go of those things while also mourning how stuck he was in his stuff such that he could not follow this man who was speaking the words of life. It was the love of wealth that kept his heart bound because the heart of a person is bound by its treasure. We are living through an epitome of that in 2021. The heart of a person who loves wealth is distanced from the Lord because faith doesn't build wealth. God does not have a problem with wealth. Frankly, everything we hoard already belongs to him anyway. Possessions are not the problem. The problem is not God's, it is our problem. You and I do not have the capacity to survive our own wealth on our own. We are made to be connected to and in communion with God, and without that connection, we will live unbound, ungrounded, free to find material prosperity while our souls shrivel within us. So what we do is we see wealth for what it is. Wealth is a cruel master, but it is a useful tool. I'll say that to you again. Wealth is a cruel master, but it is a useful tool. We approach wealth with caution, like we would a chainsaw or a bulldozer. Used correctly, used according to the manufacturer's uh, recommendations with the right protective equipment, it's incredibly effective. It can get a lot done. It can advance causes that are valuable. It can fund people who have the energy or the ability or the idea, but not the resources. Those are good things. We as a church exist in part because you are willing to give corporately and collectively so that lights can be on and there can be a building here. God is not opposed to those things. But when wealth is out of control or when wealth is in control of us, it is immensely destructive. And we learn from Pharaoh where the pain of losing what we have is excruciating when we want nothing more than to keep what we have and to fight off anybody, even Jesus, who wants to remove that wealth from us. Instead, we look to God. We take a breath, we try to understand that what it feels like God is taking from us or what he is allowing us to lose already belongs to him. It is his to give and to take. And the gift he gives that he will never take is the love of Jesus, the life of abundance, the life of giving of itself, where we will finally find what we've been looking for in our bank accounts, our identity, our hope, and a future. And so my prayer for you is that you will find those things in Jesus, that you'll find yourself in him. That you'll be part of his family here at this church, that God may lead you that way because he loves you, and so do we.
I want to pray for you. Father, of all of the possible destinations for our identity, I believe that wealth is one of the most dangerous in our cultural climate, in our context. Having good ideas, having a moral vision for a better future, these things don't get us very far without dollars to fund that dream. And unfortunately, God, we live in a position, in a place where any real meaningful change has to have a check behind it. And so we have to learn to handle wealth. I don't believe the solution is asceticism. I don't think you're calling all of your people to move to the middle of nowhere and live with nothing. Instead, we need to be equipped by you to handle these things rightly, God, to use and see them as tools and to be equipped to wield them rightly in the world. And so I pray that you would protect our hearts and equip our hands, that we would be safe from this kind of idolatry, that that would be an outpouring of us being fully known and living within you, our identity being derived as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And then as a result of that, God, that by example, you would teach us to interact with and to use rightly the wealth that you've given to us. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.